Uh, my name is Chris Bohr, and I was inspired by Ron Paul's 2008 presidential campaign to become very active in libertarianism, and that's what eventually led me to create the ethics of anarcho-capitalism. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Other and Ron Paul podcast starts now. Uh, welcome to the Honor and Ron Paul podcast. This is episode 25, and I have an author with, with us today named Chris Bohr. And uh, he has recently written a book called The Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism, which uh, is very good. It's also available in uh, audio format uh, on Audible. So uh, without further ado, Chris, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, I guess uh, I'm an engineer by trade. I like to, I like robotics and software engineering and artificial intelligence. And uh, that leads me to wonder, you know, how things work. And one of the things that I've been interested in figuring out how it works is ethics and libertarianism. And so that's uh, where the ethics of anarcho-capitalism came from. My own exploration into the inner workings of how the, my favorite ethical system works and, uh, you know, my way of expressing it and communicating to others. So you would think as a title like Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism written by an engineer that it would be very boring and dull <laughs> and uh, needlessly <laughs> complex, um, but it's, it's delightful. And um, it starts on a desert island and starts adding people and adding conflict and conflict resolution. And it builds this world and... Um, uh, talks about the different little ethical principles that come up in all these different examples that you can then extrapolate to a larger world. Uh, and it's well done. It's uh, Thank you. a fairly uh, quick read. Well, not a quick read. Uh, it moves along um, and you don't have to you know, struggle through it like some of the more other academic tomes. Um, but it's... Uh, has a very good pace uh, and I've been enjoying it. I'm only halfway through. I apologize, but uh, <laughs> no need. Uh, I, I, it's um, well done. And I, I first uh, came upon you in the Tom Woods podcast. And one of the things I found very interesting and very engineer, like my brother's an engineer. So I guess I can make fun of them because of that uh, was <laughs> your, your uh, discovery that most people's ethical and moral outlook kind of cements around age 25. And then you're like, well, I, I better get on that. How <laughs> old were you when you kind of came upon this realization? Uh, I think I was 22 or 23 when that happened. And uh, I guess it's a little nerdy and I shouldn't admit this, but I was just reading some academic papers and, uh, you know, brushing up on some stuff. And I'm not even sure if that's true, to be honest. It's just something I read somewhere and I thought, oh, that's actually kind of important for someone my age to know. And, um, you know, I don't want to be locked into the wrong ethical system or the wrong moral system. So I should you know, look around and see what's out there. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a physician um, that deals a lot with kind of the brain stuff. And, you know, there definitely is, uh, I, I don't know about that specific stat. Uh, it sounds quite a bit like, you know, some stats that people like to kind of talk about, but are much more muddy in the real world. Right. But the brain does become much more kind of crystallized in thinking. And we move to a more pattern-based brain processes. Um, as 
as we're younger, we're uh, much more creative and able to bring about a lot of different uh, ways of thinking, but our oftentimes our accuracy and things is messed up because we don't ha- we haven't developed a, a good quality pattern recognition. Mm. And then as we age, the pattern recognition improves, but then it becomes dominant, and then you start getting into this much more kind of crystallized framework where everything that comes in has to kind of fit within this narrative. So I can certainly certainly see that, but brain plasticity does continue. And there are some things that you can do to augment that um, as you age, exercise, quality diet, things like that. And just also challenging yourself. But as a bit of a tangent, I just, I just love the fact that you're like, Oh man, learn this little tidbit. And it's like, well, time to go explore the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm much older than 25 now. And uh, I feel like I'm still learning things and it's still possible to evolve my way of thinking. But, sure. Um, maybe just in general, people tend to settle down a little, a little more into like, what do they call it? System one, system two, where it's more just associative memory and you just kind of repeat the things that you learned earlier on instead of thinking critically. Uh, yeah. Very good point. Uh, so what were some of the things that you kind of dug into? How does one start to explore the world of ethics when your whole life was kind of the world of computers? Um, let's see. I, I think I grew up in a traditional kind of Republican town, Republican family. And it wasn't until uh, I was, I guess, 19 or 20 that people started hinting that there's this thing called libertarianism and it's kind of cool. So I'd heard about it and um, you know, started debating people and talking about ideas. Um, but it wasn't until... I don't know. The I was living in Philadelphia at the time, and I I remember I was walking along the sidewalk, and I saw scrawled in chalk, Ron Paul, uh, speech tomorrow, two p.m. at the um, <laughs> you know somewhere down in downtown Philadelphia. I'm like, oh, Ron Paul. Like I had heard of him. He's that libertarian guy, right? And I was like, so I went to that, and uh, I remember just meeting so many people in the Ron Paul movement that were interested in ideas and like, um, you know, reading and figuring out what's the truth or what's the truth about, you know, how the world should be or how do we feel the world should be. And there was a, so there was a ton of exposure from libertarian side of things. Um, but then I also read a lot of stuff by socialists and communists. And uh, back then I didn't really have a clear idea of, these different categories of ethical thinking and moral frameworks. It was more issue-based. I remember being very passionate about healthcare and like, oh, we don't want to mess up healthcare. Healthcare is really important. So, you know, should we have single-payer healthcare or should we have free market healthcare? Or is there some other system of healthcare that would be ideal for people who want you know, healthcare to be available as much as possible? So when I'd look into the different issues, there was tons and tons of confusion in different areas but what kind of kept drawing me back was the consistency of libertarianism and like the consistency of ron paul's message he would always apply the same principle and come to you know a fairly similar conclusion let people be free let the free market take care of things and that's how we'll develop the world that we really want yeah uh, that's one of the things as i kind of came into libertarianism and then um volunteerism and anarcho-capitalism was that uh it frees up in some ways a whole lot of brain space because 
all of these different little issues that you have to kind of figure out, well, how do I feel about, you know, random thing A or random thing B? It's like, well, you know, dig into all these things. And I wasn't really coming at it at a kind of a systematic approach. And then mm-hmm. through these uh, different principles, starting with first principles of self-ownership and property and and then building on just kind of the ethics of human action. And uh, you, you do a very good job in your book of kind of building up all of that um, through a little story. And kind of the hardest thing I think for a lot of people is kind of the, the separation of what can ethics do and what can libertarianism do and and kind of is it the answer to everything and you kind of uh get into that mm-hmm. uh, you, you very much get into that with your talking about difference between ethics and morality so can you tease that out a little bit for me sure thing um yeah i think it's really a, a great source of confusion when people think about you know how, how should I behave and how should people get along in society and what does it mean to be a good person? These are all great questions, but you're not going to have a very clear answer if you try to answer them all at once with the same answer. So what I try to do in the book is say, you know, let's answer a more fundamental question first. Uh, how do we resolve interpersonal conflict between individuals? So just people you happen to know, your family, your neighbors. And then once we have a, a good system for that, we can kind of put it in a box and say, okay, I understand ethics. Now let's talk about all the other things that people might care about, whether that is healthcare like I did when I was younger or making sure people have enough food to eat, taking care of animals, and the environment. You know, there are a million things you might care about. Becoming you know, the best person, living your best life. These are all great things to pursue. But if you try to put them all together at once, you kind of make it impossible to, to find the, uh, a perfect system that works for everybody. Whereas if you kind of separate morality and ethics, you can find a system of ethics that allows for human flourishing and everyone to get along. And then people are free to find the moral system that is best for their life. Yeah, uh, we hear that a fair amount um, when uh, people are saying, well, you libertarians, you don't want free healthcare for everyone. You don't want free roads and, and all this stuff. It's like, oh, no, no. I would love to have free healthcare for everyone. I would love to have free roads. Most definitely. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to use force and violence to create that. And so, you know, saying that you want something doesn't equate that the government has to do that. Um, and so I think libertarianism is very circumscribed in, in just saying, you know, what are the bounds of what the government can do? What are the bounds of, well, you know, pure libertarianism wouldn't have a government, but governance, you know, voluntary, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it answers just that question in regards to um, human action and monopolizing some um, group to have the ability to force other people to do things. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you are uh, just an, a little tiny 
individual, it means that you know it's on you to um, accomplish these things that you see as morally good, yeah, inexpensive mm-hmm. healthcare, um, you know, uh, charity, volunteering, you know, all of these things that are morally good. Um, it wouldn't be ethical to force people to do those things. Yeah, it's really it's it's a great point that people of all, all different stripes we all want this very similar outcome. You know, everyone to be healthy and wealthy and happy and just to live good lives. And the problem is, like you're saying, libertarians kind of recognize that there's it takes a lot of work to do that. And other philosophies will promise shortcuts. And these are really kind of fool's errands where they think, oh, well, if we just, if we just do this thing that maybe is not great for some people, we can get to this great, wonder, wonderful place, right? If we just put some men with guns in charge of society, then they'll solve all the problems and then we'll, we'll get to the wonderland. Whereas libertarians, we kind of recognize that the only true way to get to this place where everyone's happier and wealthier is to put in the effort to build up the capital structure that supports that, to make things cheaper gradually over time. And you know, we'll get there eventually. It might not be as fast as you know, communists or socialists promise, but it's the only sustainable way to get there in the end. Right. All right, so we left off in your history. Uh, instead of Googling Ron Paul, like I assumed an engineer would, <laughs> you <laughs> see it uh, chalk, uh, scrawled in the chalk. Uh, you go to this Ron Paul um, thing. Do you remember anything specific that he talked about? I'm sure it's fed and war. Uh, did it strike you, or were you then like an instant Ron Paul guy, or did it take a little while to simmer? It was it was a pretty fun experience. I'd never experienced a political speech quite like it. And, you know, over time I got used to the Ron Paul way of talking about things, but that was the first time. So the first time is always kind of special. And I remember just being in this big field uh, right next to the Liberty Bell and Ron Paul's up there and he just gives a speech. I'm like, wow, this guy is like really making sense. And all the people around are like super excited when he says something nerdy about economics. I'm like, wow, these, <laughs> these people are kind of cool. I like these people. So yeah, I made some friends and then uh, started trying to help out. And, you know, I, I don't know that politics is the best way to change the world, but it was certainly an amazing experience for me to be working with all these other Ron Paul people to try and push the movement forward. Mm-hmm. And so was there anything in, in particular uh, that you did during the, the campaign? Um, I was kind of a grunt. Um, so I would go door to door and chat with people, which I hated doing, but I was willing to do it to try and spread the message of liberty. You know, I didn't want to bother people, but you know, it was the only way to really uh, get in front of certain types of people in Philadelphia. Uh, I wrote letters and for a while the Ron Paul uh, Pennsylvania uh, group was doing handwritten letters to people. So we would spend hours just writing letters and shipping them out instead of sending like the printed postcards, you know, um, so really putting effort in, um, sign waving obviously was always fun. Like going down to uh, city hall and like waving the Ron Paul signs was great. Uh, but also there was lots of reading, which was amazing. Right. So people were sharing different ideas. That's how I got exposed to Murray Rothbard. You know, Ron Paul obviously mentions him, uh, and Mises, but you know, people, when your social group is also reading those things and recommending books, it makes it much easier to get motivated to actually reads through some of those big economic treatises. So right. it was a great time, very intellectually stimulating. Um, yeah, it was, it was really transformative. All right. And so 
then uh, 2012 runs around and he doesn't win, unfortunately. So did you continue to kind of evolve? When did you uh, make the break into anarcho-capitalism and then decide to write a, a whole book on it? Mm. Uh, let's see. So unfortunately, as you know, Ron Paul did not win in 2008, but I got exposed to a lot of cool things like uh, the Mises Institute. So I went to uh, Mises University, oh. which was a, an amazing one-week program where they just kind of bombard you with ethics and economics and you spend the evenings chatting with other libertarians and, you know, debating different t issues. So uh, that was great. Um, and then there wasn't a whole lot to do between 2008 and 2012. So it was kind of just reading. So lots of reading, hanging out with people. Uh, 2012 was super fun. I wasn't as involved as I was in 2008, but I was certainly donating and like, you know, all the money bomb stuff. I thought things were pretty close in the early uh, primaries. Like there were some time, I think he technically won uh, in a couple of states. Uh, yeah. So that was, it was, it was heart wrenching, but it's a good lesson to learn, right? Like politics is dirty. So maybe not, <laughs> you shouldn't put all your cards in that into uh, politics. Um, but then, you know, there's, there are many amazing communities and like people producing podcasts like you or books or, uh, things like that. And one that I got interested in was uh, Stefan Kinsella's uh, Libertarian Papers. It was an online academic journal where people would post, you know, Libertarian uh, papers, academic papers, and Walter Block was putting stuff in there that was kind of fun, like cutting edge mm -hmm. uh, ethical theory. And so I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, people are really trying to push the boundaries of libertarianism and improve it. Whereas you know, many other philosophies that I read about, they're just kind of rehashing things that were said 200 years ago. You know, someone 200 years ago said, you know, it's, it's not right that some people are rich and some people are poor, so it's good for poor people to steal from rich people and that will fix the world. And then on the other side, we've got these libertarian academics who are like, hmm, how does the libertarian principle apply to this very niche thing, like this crazy scenario? And that actually helps us better understand libertarianism and become better people. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting that they're doing that. And it's great. It's you know, open access. I thought maybe I can contribute that way. But I'm not really an academic, so I couldn't really produce quality papers. So eventually it came to me that you know, I'm not an academic. I can't produce like the dense treatise. And I'm not really a writer. I can't create a fun like Ayn Rand novel that is going to get people excited. But maybe there's something in between those two where I can find a niche that people will appreciate. So some pretty good theory with an okay story, we'll make like a nice intro book for people to you know, really understand libertarianism and what it's all about. Yeah. Well, job well done. So uh, going forward, uh, is there going to be any um, part two of the story of Annie and Billy? And <laughs> I forgot the well, I, protagonist. I don't want to spoil it for you since you're not done yet, but um, we can talk about it once you finish. <laughs> Uh, so right now you are um, uh, working in, you mentioned AI, uh, or is that just a fascination of yours or are you actually? Uh, yeah. So, so a company I started a while ago was pretty heavy in machine learning and robotics. Uh, it was called Kimi or it is called Kimi. Uh, and this was a company that was all around the locksmith industry. So we would apply computer vision and machine learning to D 
decode physical keys like house keys and car keys and create the digital information that would then allow you to recreate the key without the original. So say you, you know, you need a copy of your house key, you could take a photo with your phone and we would analyze that photo and then we'd send you a physical copy in the mail. Or if you happen to be in a store that had one of our robotic kiosks, you could just put your car key in or your house key and it had some internal robotics that would actually cut the key on the spot and spit it out to you. So it's kind of a, a fun application of machine learning and you know, AI. Normally people are working in kind of healthcare or something like that. We've got big messy data sets. We were kind of just doing this physical real world application that is not super sexy. You know, it's not self-driving cars, it's not drones, it's keys. But you could actually automate that process and make it faster and cheaper and more accurate. So it's kind of a, a fun project and it's still going. Um, nowadays I'm doing some more traditional software engineering work, so I'm not doing a lot of AI and robotics, but I'll probably get back into it at some point. Cool. Um, so after someone reads your ethics of anarcho-capitalism book, where do you think would be a good next step for people to go? You mentioned you wanted this to be a, a kind of a primer. Are there any books that you feel people should read before yours and any books you pe people should read after yours? Hmm. Uh, it really depends on the person. I was, you know, I hope that people who are not very knowledgeable about libertarianism will at least get a good idea of what it's about, whether they like it or not. That's up to them. Uh, for people who are already libertarians or ANCAPs, I hope that some of the more advanced concepts in the book will help them with their own understanding of the ethical theory. So, if you're just kind of a noob and you want to learn more about libertarianism, you probably want to go to some of the great, like. Uh, the great big books that are more academic and like well thought out. So I'd say For a New Liberty by Marie Rothbard is a great one. Uh, Machinery of Freedom mm -hmm. by David Friedman is great. Uh, maybe The oh, Problem yeah. of Political Authority, if they're more like political, ethical minded by Michael Humer. Um, but if, you are, uh, if you're an already an advanced uh, ANCAP libertarian, uh, you probably already know all the great books and my recommendations aren't gonna do a whole lot for you. <laughs> Yeah, I could definitely see how uh, particularly uh, problems of political authority would be a great, because like it would almost be the yin and yang. It's, okay, well, here the, here's the ethics that don't uh, kind of allow you to ethically create a system of force. And then people are like, well, you know, consequentially, you know, I still feel there needs to be a government. There needs to be some type of a rulers just because Although ethically, you know, this may be the most, the best system, you know, you still need some type of a ruling class. And then, you know, that humor just kind of hits that with a sledgehammer. Yeah. It, it's amazing that there are so many great books on libertarianism that you can kind of think about the person you're talking to and like, hmm, which book is really going to do it for them and just you know, pull it off your library shelf and give it to them. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's so hard. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it takes, it takes work, but uh, fortunately we have the internet now. I mean, I just think about, you know, poor Mises or Rothbard and they're kind of, you know, sending out little pamphlets and, you know, writing in these uh, mm. journals and, you know, having some speech and 30 people are there. It's just, but now, you know, yeah. you write a good book and it's, you can just put it on there and it's going to be there forever unless, you know, Google takes it down. Yeah. 
Can you imagine me? Can you imagine Mises on Twitter? He would just rip people. <laughs> well, be amazing. 144 characters. And Rothbard, I mean. Rothbard would be hilarious <laughs> Rothbard, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rothbard would be, he, he was uh, watching some of his old lectures. He's just hilarious. He's always laughing. Yeah. Um, oh, good times. But we have our own much more pointed and cruel uh, Rothbard, and that would be Michael Malice on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very apt analogy. Like <laughs> the ultimate troll. Uh, <laughs> but that's good, right? We want books aren't for everybody, right? Sometimes podcasts are really what are going to engage people. So it's great that you and other people are doing podcasts. Sometimes it's tweets. Yeah, who knows what's going to work for people? But however, we can get that message out. It's great. Well, Chris Bohr and his book, Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism. Everybody pick it up. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes page. This is episode 25, uh, com slash EP25. And uh, if you have put a little episode out, uh, I don't remember which episode it was. I'll link it in the description uh, called, Am I an Anarchist? Or are you an anarchist? Is everyone an anarchist that kind of talks about <laughs> similar types of things and, and how everyone can kind of agree that in a perfect world, you wouldn't need government and kind of building from there. And so that might be a little starter podcast you can kind of think about and then dig into this book and then hit some of the other uh, great ones out there. And although it is a bit of a mental effort to really dig into uh, this type of a, um, a philosophy uh, because it's certainly not something that's presented to you in popular mainstream or in school. The amount of brain space is going to open up as you can kind of see how everything coordinates and works together will ultimately give you much more peace of mind. And it's a lot of fun. If you ever have these big questions of all this stuff, having that nice core basis uh, of understanding human interaction is very helpful. And then you don't need to think, well, what do I think about this one specific thing? You can just kind of apply the principles and say, oh, well, I've never thought about that situation before, but mm, here's what I think. It's just great. So, Mr. Bohr, it's been a pleasure. Very nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Uh, anything besides the book that you want to plug? Uh, if people want to see my website, it's chrisbohr.com. All right, I'll link that as well. All right, Chris, you take care. Very nice to meet you, you and too. chat with you. Bye-bye. Bye.